Jeffrey Herf is a distinguished university professor emeritus of history at the University of Maryland. In November of 2022, here on Foreign Policy, we discussed an excellent book he had then published, Israel's Moment, International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State, 1945 to 1949. He now has a new and timely volume on the current moment, a very different moment, its title, Three Faces of Anti-Semitism, Right, Left, and Islamist. I'm Cliff May, and I have many questions for him about the multiple manifestations of Jew hatred or growth industry since the terrible pogrom of October 7th. I'm grateful to you, too, for tuning in here on Foreign Policy. Well, Professor Jeffrey, good to see you. Thanks for taking some time for us. Cliff, it's very good to talk with you again. You're best known for your research and writing on Germany, on Weimar, on the Third Reich. I think I think your first book along those lines came out like 40 years ago. So you've been thinking about anti-Semitism for a rather long time. Just, just as preface, remind us to start how you got interested in this topic. Well, two people um, uh, are at the beginning of it. Um, my father uh, was able to... The her family comes from the Rhineland, and my father was able to get out of Germany in 1937, mm. and then came to the United States, where he met my mother in Milwaukee, and then he joined the United States Army, uh, and uh, worked in a prisoner of war camp in Texas during World War II. Mm. Translating, I imagine, among other things, he was a low-level intelligence officer okay. dealing with German POWs, and. Uh, 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 you know, not one of the Ritchie boys, but he was, uh, but he was there uh, keeping an eye on the prisoners, and some of whom were devout Nazis, and others were not. And uh, he probably saved some people's lives and whatever. Then he was so the, the the topic of Nazi Germany was a was a theme in our house. And then uh, when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin uh, in the nineteen sixties, one of my professors was one of the famous German refugee historians, George Mossy. And that turned my uh, my personal interest in all of this into a scholarly direction. Was it hard for your father to get out, A, to get out of Germany in 47, and B, to come to the United States, because the U.S. was not particularly open to Jewish refugees from Germany back then? It was not difficult. I mean, he had to go to Italy first. Uh, the Herf family was unbelievably lucky. Um, uh, the immediate family got out. There was a cousin of my father's who died in the concentration camp in Gers in France, but but uh, he never thought of him. He never called himself a Holocaust survivor. As you point out, the immigration restrictions uh, prevented many other people from being able to get to the United States. So it was very fortunate. And I'm also just curious to know, in the prisoner of war camp in, in Texas, so his superior officers and the prisoners, they all knew he was German-born Jewish. Did that have interesting ramifications? Well, you know, he never um, followed up or had no interest in, in seeing these people after the war. But I would imagine that some of the German prisoners, these were German prisoners of war from the North Africa campaign. And uh, the Nazis were saying that there was an international Jewish conspiracy to kill all the Germans. So then they came to Texas and there was this German Jew who was interrogating them. <laughs> I wonder what they must have thought. Uh, maybe Goebbels was right. But uh no, all, all kidding. All kidding aside, of course, it left a deep impression on him, and he uh, and he was very uh, firm uh, about the importance of speaking frankly about that. My mother's side of the family were from Ukraine, 
Mm. And uh, my grandfather was a Milwaukee socialist and a Zionist. And uh, they were they lived in the neighborhood that Golda Meir came from in Milwaukee. And they got out earlier, I assume, not during. They left after the pogroms before World War I yeah. in 1905. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. A lot of emigrants got out then. We're lucky to do so. You spoke German at home growing up. No, no. My parents divorced when I was six. And um, so I didn't really learn German until I was in my 20s. There was a clash between the German Jewish <laughs> dad and the East European Jewish mom. And of course, it's all, it's pointless to make generalizations about that. They, they were who they are. But uh, it was important. And uh, then in the 60s, I was in the new left and uh, and the Jewish question went out the window. And it was really not until the Yom Kippur War in 1973 when I realized that Israel's existence was at stake that I began again to return to these Jewish questions. And if you're a historian of German history, 20th century German history, it comes with the territory. It's possible, of course, to write about German history and say nothing about the Holocaust or anti-Semitism. But it is a very important part of, of the tradition of, of post-war German historiography, especially since the 1970s. My first book, A Reactionary Modernism in 1984, began to address those questions. Well, and you later addressed something very important and very interesting that is insufficiently understood to this day, and that is you began to study and write about the way that Nazi ideology and Nazi anti-Semitism filtered into the Middle East during the late 1930s and 1940s. At one point, I want to Islamic anti-Semitism and Nazi anti-Semitism are not identical, but there has been, and I think you bring this out, a convergence that began then. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, let me begin with some flattery. One of the great contributions of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy in the last, I think now, 25 years, is it? 22, yeah. Close, yeah. Is to take the ideology of the Iranian government seriously. Mm-hmm. During World War II, if you, the college graduates who then were in the government had read Thomas Hobbes and Marx and um, Machiavelli, and, and if you were a highly educated political analysis in the 1940s, the likelihood is that you would have listened to Hitler and Goebbels and said, these guys are just blowing smoke. They can't really mean it. We all are too sophisticated to take any of that rubbish seriously. Uh, this is clever propaganda to, uh, to befuddle the masses. But of course, they're never going to do that stuff. Um, and uh, a lot of the smart, the best and the brightest, the the most highly educated were completely mistaken. Um, and it was not just an academic issue because um, Franz Neumann, one of the German refugee scholars, was the director of um, intelligence and analysis at the Office of, um, at the, uh, of Strategic Studies, the precursor to the CIA. And in 1942, and then again in 44, he said the Nazis would not kill the Jews because the Jews were a scapegoat that uh, that the regime could use to deflect all of its uh, frustration onto the scapegoat. So why would you kill the scapegoat? So, you know, it's easy to 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 poke to poke a few critical remarks at Franz Neumann, who was a great historian and and, and analyst and got many things right, but the um, but. What I wanted to do in the book, The Jewish Enemy, uh, Nazi Propaganda During World War II and the Holocaust, was to was to look at and take very seriously what Hitler and Goebbels and uh, Himmler and the others said in public. Um, uh, I mean, I also looked at things that they said in private uh, that were in the archives, but the the basic truth about what they were doing was was in their public speeches. 
uh, that there was an international conspiracy of Jews who were intent on exterminating the Germans, and that the German government was going to act in self-defense and kill the Jews first. Uh, so it was so ridiculous that when people like Neumann, uh, uh, I don't want to mean to pick on Franz Neumann because I really admire his much of his work as well, but when many many people in positions of responsibility uh, heard that, uh, you know, Churchill was an exception. Uh, they uh, they dismissed it, and uh, uh, un- until too long. Uh, so the Jewish enemy examines the connection between the interpretation of the Second World War that uh, the Nazi regime presented, which was a Jewish conspiracy that was in control of the Soviet Union, Britain, and the United States, uh, and the Nazi response in the form of the Holocaust, the final solution. So one of the one of the legacies of being an intellectual and cultural historian and a historian of modern German history is to think about the relationship between ideology and policy, theory and practice, and to take it very, very seriously. Uh, and uh, so in Three Faces of Anti-Semitism, I decided to include a few chapters that, that draw on, on that work. I want to pick up on something you just said, because people don't necessarily know this. When the Nazis, they said, okay, they were genocidal, but they were saying this isn't self-defense because the Jews mean to exterminate us. The Jews themselves are genocidal. That's why we have to be genocidal. I think that's a simplified, but a fair way of saying it now. Why is that so relevant? I think it's fairly obvious. You have Hamas and you have the Islamic Republic of Iran. You have Hezbollah, all of which are outspokenly, handedly, clearly genocidal towards Israel and towards Israelis. And so what has just happened? Well, South Africa and others have gone to the International Court of Justice and said, genocide is a terrible crime. We accuse the Israelis of it. We want the International Court of Justice to rule on that. And the International Court of Justice is now going to sit in judgment, not of Hamas, not of Hezbollah, not of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which for 45 years has threatened and incited genocide, but of Israel, because what they're saying is, yes, we, it's Israel that is the one that's genocidal. That sounds to me like a very much of an echo of the Nazi experience. Well, yes, I, you know, I agree with you. My colleague Norman Goda at the University of Florida shredded the South African case. If you have a chance, read the, the, uh, the dissenting opinion at the International Court of Justice by uh, Julia, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Mitubindi, I think. From Uganda. From Uganda. It's brilliant. It is, yes. It's even more searing uh, than uh, the Israeli judges, Aaron Barak, as, yes. as as good as it is. But but she, she that that is just an amazingly uh, uh, trenchant, astute opinion. And to see that it comes from the country that forty years ago, fifty years ago, was governed by Idi Amin is remarkable. And the press has more or less ignored it. Yes, there is yes. no feature articles in the Times or the Post or the Journal even uh, uh, about no. Her. Uh, how that happened, but she got it, and um, good for her. Melanie Phillips has a good article on her dissent, by the way. One one thing that that gets back to uh, some of the the essays in Three Faces of Antisemitism is this: the um, uh, in Europe after 1945, uh, Nazism for 75 years 70, ceased to be a major political factor, certainly in Germany. Uh, now, with the alternative for Germany and various right-wing parties, it's another issue. But the 
but as a major political current in European politics, it ceased to exist. There were, of course, ex-Nazis who didn't change their mind, but they kept their heads down and their mouths shut on the whole. And the conservatives, whether they were Gaullists or Christian Democrats or British conservatives, well, obviously, they would have nothing to do with these people. Uh, or, or they would incorporate them somehow as long as they just kept their mouth shut and didn't try to renew Nazism. The, um, the work that I've done on Nazi propaganda for the Arab world, or that Matthias Kunzel has done in Germany, uh, uh, is, indicates that Nazism, that, there's, that there was a special, that the Arab world and the Muslim world were different. Most people in the Arab world and most people in the Muslim world are not fans of the Nazis. But it was the only place in the world where there was any significant intellectual or cultural admiration of Hitler. And uh, there were ex-Nazis in Germany who managed to um, uh, work their way back into West German politics. And there was a lot of cynicism and a lot of hypocrisy and uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Kurt Kiesinger had been in the Nazi uh, foreign ministry uh, uh, and involved with propaganda, and he became West German chancellor. But but, but the Kurt Kiesinger of the post-war period uh, was not a Nazi. He was an ex-Nazi. And it, as unpleasant as that was, his goal in politics was not to restore Nazism to West Germany. Hashem and al-Husseini was able to return to politics in 1947, 46, 47, 48, in Palestine, what was then called British Mandate Palestine, without abandoning any of his wartime views. I just want to remind people that Hajj Amin al-Husseini was the Mufti of Jerusalem and therefore probably the leading figure in Mandate Palestine. He didn't call himself a Palestinian particularly. He was more on the religious side. And Arabs did not call themselves Palestinians really until the 1960s, until Arafat. But if you look for a major figure, Arab Muslim figure in Palestine, in Mandate Palestine, prior to Arafat, that would be Haj Amin al-Husseini. Again, he was appointed Mufti by the British, and he spent the war helping Hitler both, as you've written about, broadcasting Nazi messages into the Middle East and recruiting European Muslims for the for the SS and for, for, the, for the war effort, just so people understand who we're talking about. Yeah, the, it's, who, there's a lot about Husseini in Three Faces Chapter of uh, five, anti-Semitism. Yeah. yeah. He was not a decision maker in Berlin. He was a refugee on the run. He was completely dependent upon the Nazis. So it's not the case uh, that, uh, that Husseini was one of the architects of the Holocaust or anything like that. Um, uh, he did not have that kind of political power. But he, um, but he did have the ability to uh, uh, broadcast his views, and was given the opportunity to do that. Uh, the uh, he wrote an essay in 1937 called "Islam and the Jews," which is one of the most important documents of uh, 20th century Islamist history. Uh, in 1938, the the Nazi regime uh, published it uh, in a German translation in Berlin. And Islam and the Jews, uh, he gave versions of Islam and the Jews in lectures in Berlin and on the radio during the war. Uh, It is 
in it, he argues, he draws on his interpretation of the Quran and the biography of Muhammad uh, to basically say that the Jews in ancient Egypt deserved enslavement. Uh, and that over the centuries, the persecutions to which the Jews were subjected were well-deserved. It comes close um, uh, during the Holocaust, not to Holocaust denial, but to a Holocaust justification. And um, Islam and the Jews is one of those key texts of this tradition that roots, that views the Zionist project and then the state of Israel as only the 20th century version of a of a seven-century-long attack by the Jews on the religion of Islam. So it turned the arguments about borders, territory, one state, two state, it turned all of that into a, a basically a, a religious war, a war of religion, about which there can be no compromise. Uh, and so the Hamas Charter of 1988 and the Statement of 2017 uh, uh, are very much in the spirit of Islam and the Jews. So, what, uh, uh, my 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 friend and colleague Matthias Kunzel has, you know, w- with his wonderful ability to state things very clearly, uh, has put there was a war of religion that began in 1937 and continues to this day. Based on that, I mean, let me just ask you this: again. Were you surprised? Have you been surprised that the atrocities and war crimes committed on October 7th, rather than eliciting revulsion for Jew hatred? for anti-Semitism, appears to have fueled it in many places. South Africa. I might have thought, okay, after what happened on October 7th, a lot of people would say, all right, that's really terrible. Don't blame all Palestinians for that. That's Hamas. Hamas is extreme. It's very terrible. That's not what we've been seeing for the most part. The demonstrators on the streets are not just pro-Palestinian. They're pro-Hamas. They are both denying and justifying the the, the small-scale Holocaust of 10-7, the worst attack on Jews since the actual Holocaust, since World War II. That's, that's very much what, 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 what we're seeing. Um, and, I, and, and they're even you know, saying, and the Houthis, by the way, they're justified too. bring down another ship. That's a good thing. I am a little surprised to see that, although perhaps I shouldn't be. Historians such as Paul Johnson uh, have written about how after World War II and after the exposure of the concentration camps in places like Poland, for example, uh, Jew hatred was, if anything, intensified, and there was, and 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 the victims of the Holocaust who survived were were seen as, as as to be disdained. I mean, listen, George Patton talked about that. Let me respond with the with what you the last comment, and then turn to the to the earlier point. Um, one of the things that I that I wanted that I drew attention to in Israel's moment, and also in Three Faces is that in the immediate aftermath of the war, the Soviet Union and the communist regimes were pro-Zionist. Uh, and, uh, and that their support was even more consequential than, than Truman. Uh, because they saw the Zionist project, there, there were cynics like Stalin who saw it as a way of driving the British out of the region and getting the oil. Uh, but then there were others like Gromyko and uh, Alfred Fedorkiewicz in Poland who uh, viewed the Zionist foreign minister. Yeah, or, or, or Vassil Tarasenko, the Ukrainian uh, representative of the United Nations, who saw the Zionist project as a continuation of wartime anti-fascism and anti-racism. Uh, so th- th- there was that, um, which is important to recall. Um, the um, as to the reaction to October seventh, um, the um, 
here at the University of Maryland in College Park, uh, 11 members of my history department, including most of the members of the Middle East who work on the Middle East, and then another uh, 65 professors uh, in various other parts of the humanities, social sciences, signed a statement denouncing Israel. This was October 20th or something, 25th, denouncing Israel's disproportionate uh, response to the attack, uh, expressed horror at what Hamas had done, and then said it needed to be placed in the context of 75 years of dispossession and expulsion. And the hyperlink in the letter, then in, in, in the form of an internet, you know, online footnote, was to a, a book by the Columbia professor Rashid Khalidi and his history of, of Israel. So, in, and while my colleagues would indignantly insist, at least some of them, that this was in no way a justification of terrorism or a justification of October 7th. Nevertheless, it is terrible, but uh, was the move. And so in, in the real world of politics, uh, it amounted, I know my colleagues would not like me to say this, uh, it was a justification in the end. It is somehow terrible, but understandable. And, um, uh, and that in in one way or another, uh, Israel was responsible because of the terrible things it had done over 75 years. Uh, and so what, what we're in a battle for um, historical truth uh, about what the history of Israel has been. And um, I think it's fair to say, it's not fair to say, I think it's a fact, that... Uh, there are no senior professors at the major research institutions who have in the United States who now have a record of publication dealing with Islamic forms of anti-Semitism. I think that's that's a serious problem. There are some of us who do that, um, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, the concept of Islamophobia has had a very effective uh, impact on. Diminishing scholarship and discussion of, of 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 the ideology of Hamas and Iran. It's a huge taboo, and and and, and it is one that we at FDD set out to break early on, at least at a think tank. Much harder to do at a university campus for a lot of reasons we don't need to go into now. But the Middle East Studies Department was taken over by people who are afraid, either afraid of being called Islamophobic, or who, like the professors you you mentioned, think, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to simplify, but that's I have a license to do so as a former journalist. The Jews, the Israelis, they got what was coming to them. They deserved. They would say that, you know. They would, they would, no. you know, they would never say that. And they, and they, and and one of them even they said, to me, "You're questioning my integrity when you suggest that." Yes. And I said, "No, it's not your integrity that I'm questioning. It's your political judgment." The idea that the UN would, would all these years, and the UN is, a, is I think, a bastion of anti-Semitism, long has been. Would the Israelis, as you know, left? Gaza in 2005. They pulled out every soldier, every farmer, every cemetery, every synagogue. And yet the UN says, yeah, it's occupied territory. It's not occupied territory. There was a border. There was a fence on that border. The Israelis supplied electricity. The Israelis supplied medical. They allowed people out to go to hospitals. 17,000 Gazans worked in Israel every day on October 6th. That was the number. The Israelis promised they would double that. 
as long as they had quiet. It was it was for all intents and purposes a state. It was a state, and it was and it was a state that was building up a military and did build up a military and and spent billions of dollars on a military machine, including tunnels, for one purpose, and that was to kill Jews. While the international donor community funded the UN to provide all the government services that were necessary. I wish you were running so, editorials for the Post or the Times, but uh, the you know why? <laughs> the uh, I say as a former Timesman, yeah. The um, <laughs> the one point you make there is crucial. I mean, there are a number of very important points, but there's one point that uh, that did not come up at the International uh, Court of Justice. People are accustomed to saying Israel is a state, Hamas is just a terrorist organization. But what you just pointed out is also true, that Hamas is a mini-state. It had all the accoutrements of sovereignty. Um, not all of them, all right? Not all of them, right? It, it didn't have its own air force or its airport, or there were lots of restrictions understandable. It was not an independent state in that regard, but it was a state in the sense that it controlled the schools, the media, the, it, it had a, a military. It was able to engage in this vast construction project of building the tunnels. So it was not just, a, it was a mini state. And, and, and that has legal implications for thinking about the concept of genocide. Uh, uh, good point. Uh, because the concept of genocide, which is a problem in itself, but it, it, it it, it applies to the actions of states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, it was a state. And yes, it didn't have an Air Force. And why? Because it was, in effect, a state in at, perpetually at war with its neighbor because it had vowed, not least in the Hamas charter, that the goal is to kill, is to, to destroy the Jewish state and kill the Jews from the river to the sea. Now, Israel could have said, oh, could have said, if war has been declared, we know your intentions. We are going to do something about that. But Israel didn't. Israel said, all right, we know your intentions. We don't think your capabilities match your intentions. So we can give you electricity. We'll see how things evolve. And in fact, that was part of the conceptia, as the Israelis called. I think it's pretty clear the Israelis were duped into believing. I've talked to Israelis about this over the years. Hamas, in some ways, they're better than Fatah and the Palestinian Authority because they're candid. But we think that over time, they're going to worry more about the life of the people in Gaza. They'll want to send people out to work. They'll want better lives. They'll have something to lose. We can work this out. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll live with a state next door that wants to destroy us, and we won't try to destroy them. And maybe that'll, it'll evolve in a good way. That was, that was, the, con- that was the concept. I think that, that you know, this is a case of the wish being father to the thought, that in order— in order to come to the conclusion that you and I have come to about Hamas, or that now all of Israel has come to after October 7th, um, if, if you were to come to that conclusion in 2009 or 2014, then if you were the prime minister of Israel, you'd have to launch a war. And so it's, not, it's easy for academics to you know, talk about methodological errors and whatever, but if you're launching a war, then many people are going to die. Um, Palestinian uh, civilians in Gaza and Israeli soldiers, um, and the Israeli military had some inkling of the tunnel construction, not its full dimension, and they, the generals, knew that it was not going to be easy. So, if you're faced with the issue of do we go to war, or do we hope that that uh, Mercedes Benz and shopping malls are going to convince the people in Gaza that it's better uh, n- not to try not to try and destroy the state of Israel? 
Well, you can see why people would want to favor that second option. Uh, and uh, the uh, maybe you've thought about this. I'll ask you a question. What do you think would What do you think would have happened if the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, well, well, said the way the Washington Post, the United Nations, Human Rights Watch, uh, uh, and on and on and on, had over the last twenty years focused on the ideology of Hamas? on its intentions, on the role of UNRWA in reinforcing Hamas. Uh, uh, what if the funding for UNRWA had been withdrawn 20 years ago? Um, and uh, there must have been people in Gaza who knew about the Gaza, the tunnel construction. This is a vast, vast construction project. Could not have been kept secret from everybody. What if all of that had come out 10 or 20 years ago? This war, this, late, this lat- latest war might not have happened. So uh, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, soul searching that needs to go on uh, in the editorial offices at the United Nations, in the State Department, various places, that um, this war was, could have been prevented. Uh, uh, it could have been prevented if uh, there had been a sharp focus on what Hamas really is. What it was doing. Uh, you're 100 percent. I think you're 100 percent right. And I don't think that soul searching is likely to happen in many of at the U.N. And, and much of the media. And one other point, because it is a, that an Israeli made to me is. Just this clip, if, at, if on October 6th, we had said we can no longer we, we know what's going on exactly. We know what, what what's threatening us. We have to go in. We'll have to initiate a war. Think what the reaction of the world community or the international community, so-called, would have been then. Imagine, and I also had that conversation with people in the north. Hey, you guys, you got 150,000 missiles pointing at you. Is that okay? Can you just do that? And the answer was, well, you know, it's not so. Easy. You know, if we want to wipe those out before they're launched, it's going to be a bloodbath. Think of what the, you, you know, Cliff, what that means from a public relations point of view. So we've held off. Now that raises a whole question, which we don't really want to hear. Now, at this point, when you have 100,000 Israelis not, not in their homes, both in the Gaza envelope, but also in the north of Israel, because they're afraid of, of, of Hezbollah, which has been launching rockets, not a full war, but sporadically, what do you do? do you, you cannot, can you really leave it that people are not going back to their homes because they're afraid of that? Or do you not have to insist that Hezbollah finally be forced to accept what, it, what theoretically we had the UN, the UN Resolution 1701 in 2006. It said Hezbollah should not have any weapons or any forces south of the Latani River. Everyone agreed. UN forces, UNIFIL go in. Nothing happens. In fact, quite the contrary. The missiles are installed in greater numbers over the years since the UN was, was ignored. And by the way, you do not see the UN Secretary General saying, by the way, it's high time. We enforce this. It's high time that Hezbollah did what the UN, what the UN Security Council insisted in 1701. But I want to say with your book, I don't want to. There's much we can talk about, and 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 I love to, but I should stay stay with your book. But if you want to answer that, go ahead. I'll give. Well, you I would just say uh, I think uh, that the question uh, that your comments in our conversation suggest to me is: Is October seventh going to be a clarifying moment? Uh, and by that I mean, uh, will liberal opinion 
broadly understood in Europe and the United States understand that October 7th was the result of a profoundly reactionary set of ideas that is more indebted to Nazism and fascism and religious fanaticism than it is to uh, any uh, uh, any version uh, of liberalism or the left. So it's very strange. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to speak biographically, but I, I can remember when people would chant, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, the NLF is going to win. And uh, when the Western left did that, it was uh, it was wrong. But at least it was about some somebody who had something to do with the traditions of communism, uh, which was a terrible thing for the Vietnamese, but it was not a legacy of fascism and Nazism. Uh, something has happened in the last 40 or 50 years so that there is now uh, on the campuses and elsewhere people who regard themselves as left wing who are cheering an organization or making excuses for it or minimizing their criticism of it that has its roots in the after effects of Nazism and fascism and religious fanaticism. And most of these people are, if not atheists, at least think religion is ridiculous. Um, uh, and uh, would be horrified at uh, groups that persecute homosexuals or subordinate women. And here we are. So the clarifying moment um, uh, uh, after October 7th should be for those people who are making those chants um, to say, why are you making the case for a reactionary organization? What is it that you find appealing about these people? Uh, uh, because they despise you. They despise everything about you. Don't you understand that? And they don't. Or, or, or they might understand it, but for some reason they despise Israel even more. Uh, so it's this clarifying moment that, uh, that, um, that, that three faces of anti-Semitism tries to stimulate. Um, and, uh, the, um, uh, I, uh, I, I hope it will. Uh, uh, I hope it will. Uh, thank goodness for that judge from Uganda. Uh, you know, yeah, yes, that is one of the most important documents of recent years. Her state. Segwaying back to your book, the Soviets early on, as you say, largely for cynical reasons, supported the birth of Israel. The Soviets later were to change their mind, and there's a lot of evidence, you have some in your book, that the Soviets began to push anti-Israelism uh, in international organizations and elsewhere uh, under the guise of anti-Zionism. After the Zionism was initially mentioned, should, there be, should the Jews of the Middle East, most of them in Palestine, should they have self-determination? Should they have their own state? And of course, more than half of the Jews in Israel descend from families who never were in Europe. They were in Morocco. They were in Algeria. They were in Iraq, Iran, um, Egypt. Should they have their own state or should they live as a minority in, other sta in, in, in an Arab and Muslim state? And of course, there's not a single Arab or Muslim state today, I would say, where Jews um, or, any really, or any minority has equal rights, has guaranteed equal rights and freedoms. Not, not, not a single one. 
Okay, so but the, but then what you get is the Soviets are the ones pushing through anti-Zionism such things as the 1975 General Assembly resolution that Zionism is what it is racism. The Zionism is racism, and there's been a lot of the Soviets pushed a lot of the ideas that make up modern anti-Semitism embraced not least by the left. Am I correct? And there's not and that's in your book. Well, what the the, the 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 enormous accomplishment of the Soviet propaganda campaign in Israel consisted in this, that after the defeat of Nazism, talking about an international Jewish conspiracy or using the language of, of Hitler was a zero in world politics. No, you wouldn't convince anyone. And, uh, and Husseini and Said Qutb, the ideologist of the Muslim Brotherhood, they had fans in the Arab world and the Muslim world, but, they, but to speak the way they did was not something that would generate enthusiasm among leftists in Europe, the United States, or anywhere else in the world. What the Soviet Union did uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s was to take the language of anti-fascism right. and turn it against Israel. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, to uh, say, well, if you're against fascism and you're against imperialism, then you should have to be against the Zionists. Uh, so it, it was an outrageous reversal, but a very effective one. In fact, as you say in your book, and I, I highlighted this quote, that created the possibility for an anti-Semitism with a progressive pedigree. The, the question you had just raised, that's how you answer it, and I think rather well. I think, you know, as, as you know, there are many debates about what is, what is and is not anti-Semitism. And um, if you call Israel apartheid, is that anti-Semitic? I think, and I, I don't want to get into that discussion, but, I, but, uh, but uh, what is the case? is that if you completely deny the legitimacy of the state of Israel, and if you, as the Soviet Union did, supported Saddam Hussein and uh, Sirius Assad and uh, the PLO under Arafat, at the same time that they were all engaged in, uh, in either going to war or engaging in terrorist attacks on Israel, and if the goal of the PLO then was to destroy the state of Israel by force of arms, if you then say that doing that has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, then what does the word really mean? Um, and uh, the um, and that was one of the distinctive features of Soviet anti-Semitism that it that it it denied that it was any such thing, at the same time that it was sending weapons to people who were trying to destroy Israel. Uh, uh, so uh, the it's a uh, it's. You know, I think in, well, enough said about it. I'm going to cherry pick. You have 16 chapters in the book. They're all good. Um, we don't have time for everything. We're, so start with this one. The chapter you wrote called Taking Iran's Anti-Semitism Seriously. You complimented FDD for doing that. Early on, we didn't walk just on the Sunni side of the street. We saw that terrorism was being sponsored from the region in Tehran. Talk a little bit about taking Iran, or, or really, the, I, and when I say Iran, I don't. I, I think I, my, my general view is that most Iranians are not only not anti-Semitic, not anti-Israel. They would be very happy to have a government that got along with Israel. I think there's a lot of evidence I can point to that that makes that case. It's not just a theory, but I'm not going to go into it here. But let's talk about the re, the regime in Tehran, the Islamist regime, and and it is a it was a regime formed by not an Iranian revolution, but a Islamic revolutions they saw to change the Middle East and spread the revolution, which also meant dominance of this regime. 
and really create a new caliphate. Not quite the words they'd use for a Shia, but caliphate. So take Iran's anti-Semitism seriously. It's diverse with Khomeini, right? The diversity, equity, and inclusion officers tell us that you, it's important to to respect everybody. Um, you, you shouldn't disrespect, and I and I, I've always agreed with that. I think it's important to respect everybody. Uh, and part of respecting people is to take what they say seriously, and disrespecting people is to dismiss what they say seriously. That's condescending. Uh, uh, Rule Gerecht and. You and uh, the other people, the FDD, you know, have uh, 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 Mark Dubowitz. You've all done a splendid job of, of, of examining the ins and outs of Iranian policy, and uh, um, uh, I've learned a lot from all of you, and so have a lot of people in Washington. But uh, the but my contribution draws on the work of uh, my my friend and colleague Meyer Litback in Israel uh, and others who have looked at Khomeini. And uh, Khamenei and uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, as through the lenses of intellectual and cultural history, and to look closely at their text, look closely at what they say, and to say they mean it. They are not kidding. Uh, and uh, yes, they're politicians. Yes, they're in a struggle for power. Yes, they say one thing and do another. But there are certain deep convictions they have about the Jews and about Israel uh, that they really mean. And uh, the no amount of uh, apologizing for the coup of 1953 uh, or, uh, uh, you know, talking about the errors of this or that aspect of American foreign policy uh, is going to change their mind. That's what they really believe. And uh, so respecting them uh, entails uh, when they say death to America, death to Israel. uh, it, 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 is not, it is not adequate to say that they're not serious. Uh, and, uh, uh, and you and, and I were involved in the debates about the, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And, and uh, once you get into a negotiating like that, it's, it's the engineers and the physicists and the diplomats uh, who begin to weigh into the middle of things. And these, the perspectives of intellectual and cultural historians move to the side. But that's what's most important, what they really believe. And uh, uh, what should have happened was that Iran should have been hauled before the International Court of Justice 20 years ago and accused of the crime of incitement to genocide. Maybe it wouldn't have flown. You know, maybe only two of the 15 justices would have said yes. But um, uh, I think it would have been worth doing. That's what the, as you know, Erwin Kotler, the the great human rights attorney from Canada, has been saying that for years, but wasn't able to achieve that result. And this this links with your chapter on anti-Semitism in the academy since 9-11, but you, you, you made some reference to, to what's going on in your university and, and elsewhere. Barack Obama did not take seriously, it seems to me, the ideology of the Islamic Republic of Iran. He, I, I think he believed, and I think this was a common belief on campuses, that they had legitimate grievances, as you say, 1953, weren't we involved in a coup against Mossadegh? I think that's exaggerated. The scholar Ray Takai, a council of foreign relations, has made this very clear in his writing that it's greatly exaggerated. Okay, but either they have grievances, we can address those grievances, I will reach out my hand, he said, maybe they will unclench their fist, we can come to a modus vivendi, they have equities in the Middle East, 
They can share the neighborhood with the Saudis and presumably with the Israelis, and they'll be satisfied with that. And that was, a, listen, what, am I wrong to think that President Obama was not doing what you say, taking them seriously, reading what they had to say and saying they mean it. And I'm afraid that Biden's policy vis-a-vis Iran has been a continuation, a resumption of Obama policy vis-a-vis Iran. And we've been seeing the results of that, not least in terms of the various... Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm in, I'm in print and online criticizing Obama, and uh, for for just that reason. And uh, the uh, the idea was that uh, if if we would do a deal, that they would moderate, and uh, in, 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 instead they were incentivized uh, um, and encouraged. So uh, the uh, now. Given the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was nobody who wanted to start another. There was never any thought about a land invasion of Iran. But um, the uh, uh, one administration after another has hoped to, to just push the issue into the future. Um, it, it may be now uh, that things are heating up so much. But um, the again, I. I know enough about politics and enough about policymaking in Washington to know what I don't know and uh, uh, to not appear on a podcast and tell the government what it should do, because I'm sure there's an enormous amount that I don't. Uh, uh, All all I'm saying is that in terms of the public discussion uh, of the nature of the Iranian government, it is important to speak more frankly uh, about its core beliefs. Uh, And I, I, you know, I'm, it, it's a huge responsibility to, to make decisions about the use of, use of force, and uh, so I don't I don't want to appear here as somebody who you know is, is telling people what to do because I I have some inkling of the pressures that they're under. But uh, um, the, the one one American administration after another uh, has been reluctant to call a spade a spade. Right, and I'm I'm a little less reluctant than you are. Why? Because I think it's the job of a think tank to, to provide good advice, not to instruct. I can't instruct, but I can advise. And ideas are consequential only if they have power behind them. And that means policy or legislation. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just commentary. <laughs> but uh, One thing I would add, one thing I would add, and, and that is that the political center in this town needs to speak up loud and clear about the the indispensable nature of Americans' role in the world. It's it's under attack from both right and left. Oh, we'll, end with, we'll end with this. I'm going to read a, a sentence from your conclusion, and you can say anything you want about it or not, because it was, I thought it was very good. And you write in your conclusion, which is titled The End of Simultaneity of Anti-Semitism's Three Faces, it is the leftist and Islamic faces of anti-Semitism, that in the name of anti-Zionism and even human rights, have achieved a certain cultural respectability and institutional anchor in the university's cultural institutions. I find that a a very insightful and very frightening observation on your part. Thank you. I think it's true, uh, and and it's ridiculous. It's both both true and ridiculous uh, that, um, that that, that, that people who would never have anything to do with somebody who, you know, hangs homosexuals or subordinates women. Let's be frank, also expresses racism towards Africans. That isn't discussed often enough. 
somehow thinks these people are the vanguard of some revolution. They're not. The emergence of such a anti-Zionist consensus took decades. Maybe October 7th will be a kind of a shock that will cause many people to think again. All I can do as a historian is is to do the research and writing I do and hope that uh, that some people, including some some people in their 20s and 30s, uh, will read it as well. Well, I hope they do. Um, the book is Three Faces of Anti-Semitism, Right, Left, and Islamist. And our guest today has been Jeffrey Herf. And Jeffrey, thanks for the work you do. Thanks for this, very, as you say, spirited conversation. I've enjoyed it greatly. Hope to see you and talk to you again soon. And thanks to all of you who joined us today for this episode of Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.